Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you. Special welcome to anyone who's visiting with us. I'd love to meet you after the service. Uh, you're here on a, on a good Sunday. We're starting a new sermon series uh, through the, at least the first part of the book of Acts. And as Ben mentioned, there is a, a study guide or outline or intro guide that's in your bulletin. It's also in line if you happen to lose this. But um, I'd encourage you to follow along. You can read ahead using the, um, the schedule that's on the back so you can kind of know what we're looking at each and every week. And this week, we're going to look at the first 14 verses. And I'm going to kind of open a couple of um, boxes for us and, and not necessarily empty all of them because we're going to uh, be spending a, the next nine weeks or eight weeks in uh, the book of Acts. And so I'll hopefully tie up some of those loose ends to mix a few metaphors there. Um, so I won't be able to answer every question about this passage, but this passage, Luke is setting up for us what he's hoping to do throughout this book. And this is our New Testament reading. This is Acts chapter 1, 1 through 14. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote down about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my, gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath's day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. What do we know about sequels? What's the stereotype of sequels, especially to movies? Well, we, we're led to expect and assume that they're not going to be nearly as good. Someone releases this fantastic movie and tells a great story, and everyone's enthralled, and they wait for the sequel, but the expectations are so high that once they finally see the sequel, it kind of falls flat. We see this with music, too. 
a band hits the scene and they release this great record. It's groundbreaking. And then everyone's waiting for the next record. And we have a name for that next flop. It's called the sophomore slump. It doesn't always happen, but we're, we're conditioned to expect sophomore slumps, to expect that sequels are not as good as the original. And Acts is a sequel. Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, that Luke is written to Theophilus, but also to all the surrounding churches, and now to you and I. It's a sequel. And maybe like people like us, we, we like the original. We like hearing about all that Jesus did and all of these fantastic wonders that he did. We see the miracles. We see him turn water into wine. We see dead men walk again. We're excited about that. Maybe we even believe it deeply that those things happen, but we're still pessimistic about the sequel. We're pessimistic about his work now. How can it compare? How can our mundane, humdrum lives compare with what was going on back there where he said, raise up and walk again, when he healed people immediately and fantastically? How could our humdrum lives compare with those fireworks? And we sort of have low expectations for Jesus' work in our lives now because it was built up to be so grand and so outstanding. How can our lives compare? What do we expect? Maybe we're tired of waiting. We're tired of waiting for the next set of fireworks when, as it says here, that Jesus will come back. I went to see uh, The Wrath of Khan this week at uh, the Hollywood Theater, and I tried to recruit a bunch of people to go, but only one turned out. I guess they either didn't think that it was going to be that good of a movie or they didn't want to be seen with me going to a a Trek film, especially an old one. The person who ended up going with me um, thought they were going to see the brand new J.J. Abrams release of Star Trek Into Darkness. And so when we were sitting there and the opening sequence from this 1982 movie started going, you could clear, clearly see that um, he, was a, he was a bit confused. But he sat around and he sat through it and uh, enjoyed it, I think. The, the thing about The Wrath of Khan, um, if you ask any Trekkie almost, is it's much better than the original. That it as a sequel exceeds expectations from the original motion picture. I also got to see Empire Strikes Back in the theater when it first came out. And even though I was seven or eight then, I thought, wow, this is a much more complex uh, movie. And now, looking back now, I think this sequel is much better than the original. Godfather 2, it's at least as good as Godfather 1. There's exceptions to the sequel is going to be less good than the original. There are exceptions, and Acts is telling us that Though Jesus is at work in the world differently now, though Jesus is doing this sequel differently through his church, that it's no less good and it's no less significant. Significant. There is waiting. There is patience. But if you're a Christian, what Acts is laying out for us, what Luke is laying out for us here is that you must wait. You must wait with hope. You must wait with witness. Let's look at those three things in order, but let me first pray for our time together. 
Father, we are here from many different places and backgrounds, and some of us don't believe yet. We're unsure if we can believe, and those of us who do believe are unsure if we can continue. We stumble through life. We, we fail oftentimes. And Lord, we need you. Jesus, we need you afresh. We need you to step into our lives and help us to understand how you truly are still alive and active and intervening in our lives and praying for us constantly. I pray that in some way we would connect with that truth this morning, that it would change the way that we live, that change the way that we interact with others, and change the way that we interact and relate to you. Lord, we pray that you would bless this reading and preaching of your word, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. First of all, waiting. You can um, get into a, an argument uh, with certain people if you claim certain religious beliefs for our founding fathers. At least um, some of them, it is argued that they were deists. But if you say that in the wrong company, then you can get in trouble. Because what this means is that they were sort of mildly Christian. They were theistic in their orientation, that God was there, that God created the world. He left us some clues, left us natural law, but we have to really work out our lives, work out our governance and so forth on our own. Now, deism as an ideology has pretty much died out. But as we read through Acts, we get the sense that, that Luke sees a danger in a sort of practical deism settling in to the church. Now, remember that he's writing about these events a number of decades after they took place, and so his immediate readers are in the same situation that we are. They're not eyewitnesses. They have to trust the testimony of someone else, just like we do. And what Luke's readers needed to understand is that God's, God had not closed the book on humanity, that though Jesus had ascended, that these fantastic things had somewhat ceased in their experience these decades later, that Jesus was still just as much at work. It may look differently, but if you truly understood, if they truly understood the implications of Jesus' life and his work, the option to be sort of mildly Christian, the option to live in a practically deistic way really isn't an option open to Christians. Now, what do I mean by this? Think about your own life. Do you find yourself thinking, you know, my parents are never going to reconcile? Do you find yourself thinking, I am stuck in this habit and I will never get out of it? I'm forever bound to this depression. My spouse will never stop this behavior. This person who's hurt me will never say they're sorry. How would these attitudes, how would these thoughts of never change if we were really convinced that God's Word really is living and active, as Hebrews tells us? that God, through the person of Jesus, through His Spirit, is actually really present and at work in His church, wouldn't, wouldn't it dispel our discouragement? Wouldn't we begin to learn to laugh at our fears, to laugh at those times we say never? I will never say never again because I've seen Jesus at work in real ways in my life and in the lives of those around me. 
Luke opens his book. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. We spent over a year studying the Gospel of Luke, which Luke says is a careful reporting of Jesus' life and his teaching. And here in his second letter, he says that what the first letter dealt with, what I dealt with Theophilus in the Gospel of Luke, was all that Jesus began to do and to teach. What is Luke telling us about this book of Acts? All the things that Jesus continued to do and to teach after he was taken up into heaven. The sequel is necessary because it's not over, because Jesus continues to do and to teach. And in the very first verse, Luke is telling us Jesus is still at work. Jesus is still present. Jesus is still alive. It's different in the way that he works now as opposed to the time when he was alive on earth and as opposed to the time where he worked through his apostles in miraculous way. It's different, but no less potent and no less real. The challenge for Christians is not that we don't know this, that we don't believe this. It's that sort of, you, you know how you will open up your browser and you start getting interested in a number of things and you have 30 tabs open on your browser. And so not, you know, only the one in the, that's open has your attention. And it's not that we don't know that Jesus is alive, Jesus is active, Jesus is at work through his church. It's not that we don't know that, it's just that it's on one tab, maybe hidden way deep on our page. And what we need to do through worship is to open that tab, to take a look again at the fact that we, that we believe that Jesus is active and alive in his church. That's what we're doing as we come to worship. We're opening that tab and rereading it, reacquainting ourselves with the fact that Jesus is alive and he is present among us. That's why we encourage you to be part of a community group so that you can sit across the table from other people who share that and hear stories about how Jesus is working in their lives. And you can share. You can be reminded that Jesus is actually at work. You can hear stories of that. That's why we encourage you to be a part of a Bible study. You can read through these stories again and share them with other people. That's what you're doing as you try to get Jesus and his word into the midst of a conflict or a problem that you're dealing with. You're opening that tab and saying, Jesus is alive and active. Whether I sense it or not, whether it seems like it or not, and my duty as a Christian is to try and and dial into that, to try and open that browser window enough so that I can be reacquainted with it. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his first disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. You see, this promise is that even after he dies and is resurrected and then ascends into heaven, that promise is still still real. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And we'll get to that later, how that actually takes place in the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But Luke is setting up for us that this is what he's telling us through the book is how Jesus has done this, how Jesus has not left us as orphans, but how he has actually come to us in the Holy Spirit. 
In the Gospels, Jesus was present in his actual body, and now it's through the church, what we call his body. And in some ways, the theme of Acts for modern Christians and for you and I as a part of in-town is learning to see the supernatural identity of the church, to learning, learning to see, to become reacquainted, to opening the tab that says in-town is a supernatural place where Jesus is at work and that he has, in fact, established this church and is moving it forward. And it's for us to take a step, to choose, to leave practical deism, to take a risk, to be unsafe for the sake of the world around us. There is waiting. There is waiting on God existentially in our own individual lives, waiting on God as a church to do what we're asking of him to do, And there's waiting on God ultimately as we wait for the end of all things. And there's waiting, and it takes patience, but it is an active waiting. It's not a waiting where we sit on our hands and just wait to be whisked to heaven. It is an active, engaged, potent waiting. You wait, and secondly, you wait with witness. You wait with witness. Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. That is his work that makes the redemption of people's souls, the redemption of the world possible. It is finished. Ultimate, eternal peace is now possible. He says, it is finished, but he doesn't say, I am finished. In these 40 days after his resurrection, he is trying to help these disciples to see that things have not come to an end. In fact, In many ways, they're just beginning, and that he is entrusting to them to carry out his global mission, the global implications of the gospel, to use them, to use you and I to, in fact, change the world, and they still don't get it. Verse 6 says, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom to Israel? Even after 40 days of dialogue and instruction on the kingdom of God, they're still thinking too small. They're still thinking with very restrictive boundaries. They're still thinking about Israel getting back on top. Their boundaries of God's work were far too small, and the expectations of the kind of work that they were to be engaged in were far too narrow. They needed to see the expanding horizons of Jesus' work, that it was not going to be located only in Jerusalem, but it was to start there and then permeate the surrounding countryside, even to the ends of the world. They needed to understand that what Jesus was at work doing was a work of rescue and repair and restoration that embraced not only the Israelites, but all peoples and all things to the end of the earth. It was a triumph, a conquest of grace that had only just begun in Jesus' life and work, but that he was going to continue work, this work. When many of you know that I worked in Palo Alto for a few years before coming here, and one of the cool, exciting things about being there is visiting people in their place of work because you have these Uh, headquarters of these amazing corporations that are all over the world, and you can go and kind of visit these places. And Google 
is one of them. And they're like the Borg. They're kind of like taking over everything in Mountain View and, and the surrounding areas. But Building 43 is kind of the hub. It's the cyber equivalent of Area 51. And it acts as kind of their company's black ops and their brainstorming facility. And it was so much fun to go and visit there because you just felt like you were at the center of something exciting. And you learn as you interact with these people and you see the the writing on the walls, literally, that their aim is nothing less than to take over the world. And they have this whiteboard that right when you walk into... Uh, into Building 43. It's this huge whiteboard, which any employee can pick up a, a, a marker and add to, but you can't erase anything. And so over time, it's just filled. Almost every little inch, square inch is filled with word bubbles pointing to other word bubbles and arrows and all the way across the whiteboard. And this is their strategy. At the top, it says Google. And then here's how they're going to take over the world. And some of it's kind of farcical. Some of it's real. So you see these uh, word bubbles that has one says spy satellites and then another arrow across the board to orbital mind control. One of them is low-flying aircraft providing Wi-Fi to all homes. Another is tabletop nuclear, nuclear fission, fusion. Did I say that like George Bush? Nuclear fusion. 100% accurate weather reports. Another is, buy New Zealand. Because if you've got all the money in the world, why not? So some of this is tongue-in-cheek, obviously, but their ambitions involve the whole planet. Their ambitions are so huge. They want to dominate in search, and they want to dominate in many other areas. They want to take over the world in many ways. N.T. Wright is a a New Testament scholar in Britain, and he talks about this movement from Jesus to the church. And he says, not so much the end of the old story as it is the launch of the new one. The gospel resurrection stories end not with, well, that's all right then, nor with Jesus is risen, therefore we will rise too, but with God's new world has begun. Therefore, we've got a job to do and God's Spirit to enable us to do it. That job is to plant the flags of resurrection, new life, new communities, new churches, new faith, new hope, new practical love, in amongst the tired slogans of idolatrous modernity and destructive postmodernity, It can happen. By God's grace, it will happen. The fact that today we may not see it happening is neither here nor there. Sometimes it only takes three days. Jesus' work on the cross is setting up a whole new world. The gospel is only the beginning of that. And Luke begins to write for us this second account, this sequel that says it's even better than the first because it is now going not just to the Israelites, not just to one city, but around the world. What does this look like? We'll continue to talk about this throughout our series, but there's many great examples throughout church history. We see the great awakening in Europe in the 1800s, the spiritual outpouring, people coming to church, people coming to Jesus. 
But it wasn't just that people started crowding into churches, but these people began to meet Jesus in mass. And these new Christians and new churches saw themselves as sent into the culture. They saw themselves as witnesses to what Jesus had done, what he had done in their lives. Now, maybe that's the sort of thing that makes you nervous because you've encountered kind of a pushy Christian in the past who is trying to witness to you, who's being pushy about what he or she believes. Or maybe you're wary of the kind of culture war languages that many Christians, language that many Christians seem to deploy in so-called witness. But during this revival, these missional witnessing Christians weren't interested in setting up a theocracy. They weren't shouting at people, but they looked around at the cultural and commercial life of England and said, because of my encounter with Jesus, I should care about things like education. I should, be, I should care about children being mistreated in the, the workforce. I should care about people being enslaved and their lives taken away from them. From them. And during this movement, during the Great Awakening, some of the, the greatest um, educational reforms happened to take poor people out of generational poverty. They saw children being mistreated in the workplace and went about to reform the child labor laws to protect children. And they worked tirelessly and courageously, along with many others who weren't Christians, to abolish the slave trade. They absolutely, literally changed the world. And it was because they had had a personal encounter with Jesus that didn't stop with them, because their church saw themselves as sent into mission, as waiting in witness, not just waiting out the end of the world, but waiting deliberately in witness. Jesus wants his people to have high ambitions, to ask, what could I accomplish through the influence of the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus want to accomplish through me? When you come here each and every week, what do you expect to happen? Are you looking for a a spiritual pick-me-up? Are you thinking as you come, boy, I hope my kids aren't really rambunctious and too loud. I hope the coffee kicks in in time for the sermon. I hope so-and-so is listening to this sermon because they really need it. What about me? What am I thinking about as I come? You know, boy, I, I hope I don't lose my place in my notes. I hope I'm not boring. I hope that the service comes together according to plan, that there's no major hiccups, and that we can get right back at it on Monday morning and start crafting another one. If this is all we're wanting, aren't we asking, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Aren't those the same very types of question, questions? We're denying the power. We're limiting the scope of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. Jesus rose. He ascended to the right hand of the Father that he might send his Spirit to change you and to change your world and to change the world through you. He rose and ascended that he might continue to work through you to work through the church, that this would be a church, a community that's marked out as people planting flags of resurrection in their daily lives. Do you see your habits as insurmountable? Do you see the problems that are at work and at play in your life as 
just unworkable. You'll never get through them. Do you see reconciliation as impossible in your relationships? Do you see the burdens and the brokenness of our city outside these walls as simply far too big for our church to address? Well, I've got good news for you. Luke has good news for us throughout this study that God has not abandoned his world. And God has not abandoned you. And he hasn't abandoned this church. We are called to wait with witness. Wait with witness to the fact that Jesus has ascended into heaven, but he hasn't ceased his work, that he's living and active. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Christians, your job, our job as a church, is not to stand around waiting. It's not to stand around looking into the sky, but it's to wait with purpose. It's to get on with the business of, wish, of witness. It's to get on asking the question of what needs to change in light of Jesus' ascension. What needs to change in light of Jesus' life, work, resurrection, and ascension? Maybe my job needs to change. Maybe I don't need to change change jobs, but change the way I go about work. Maybe it's not just the place that I go and make money, but it's where God has deliberately placed you to be a, a beacon of gospel joy, of gospel life. Maybe your marriage is not meant to be an apparatus of your happiness, but it's a, it's a partnership. It's a team that's deployed in the kingdom of God, bearing witness to the resurrection. Maybe our church is not the place where we come to get our religious goods and services, but it's a platoon. It's a platoon that's intent on taking the work of Jesus further, not in our own strength or ingenuity, but being available to Jesus to be witnesses to his resurrection. Not standing around waiting, not waiting to be taken out of this world, but seeking to bring the presence of Jesus into this world now. You wait, you wait with witness, and then finally, you wait with hope. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And this is what I don't have time to unpack. We'll be doing this over the next eight or nine weeks. But Acts is a story of what the kingdom is, what the kingdom looks like, how to know it, how to see it, how to perceive it, how to be part of it. The gospel is the good news. And the gospel brings the good news of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension and his coming again. And the gospel begins, the good news comes to Jerusalem, but then it expands from there to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And as we read through Acts, we see that very thing happening. We see the gospel going to a Samaritan, a religious half-breed, no claim on the kingdom whatsoever. We see the gospel going to a Roman, a Gentile, the enemy of Israel, 
and the gospel goes from Judea and then farther to outside of Jerusalem into Judea, we see an enemy, we see a Gentile Roman centurion coming to Jesus. And then we see an Ethiopian. The gospel goes to the very ends of the earth. An Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith in Jesus. And what this tells us is that the gospel is not simply for us. We're not to hold it in trust until Jesus comes back. The gospel is for all people. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. It is awaiting with hope. And he doesn't come back to reward the religious. He doesn't come back to reward those who have lived worthy lives, who've done enough in witnessing. He comes back to those who see themselves in the category of religious half-breed, outsider, enemy, Gentile, all the people who have no claim whatsoever on the kingdom, no claim whatsoever on the gifts of God. It come, he comes back to grant final salvation and eternal salvation to those who see themselves as having no claim on it see themselves as the Ethiopian, as the centurion, as the Samaritan. Being a witness is not simply taking the gospel to those types of people, but it involves seeing yourself as one of those people. And when you begin to see yourself as an Ethiopian that had no claim, no geographical proximity, and yet the gospel came into your life, When you see yourself as a religious half-breed, a Samaritan who had no claim upon Jesus, and yet Jesus came into your life nonetheless, when you begin to see yourself as a beneficiary of God's grace, there's this infectious, contagious joy that will overflow. That's giving witness The people that I knew who worked at at Google and Apple and some of these other companies had this infectious joy about what they were doing. They didn't want to work anywhere else in the world, and they made you excited too. I would be at lunch, and one of them would say, you know, I was employee number 207 here at Google, and we were working on the search algorithm back then. And then they would talk about all these things that I had no clue what they were talking about. But it made me want to. It made me want to go to Wikipedia and figure out, what, it, what does that mean? They would be at Apple at the mothership. And they'd say, well, I got to work on the iPod prototype. I was there when Steve Jobs brought it into the room. I got to play with the iPad before it came out. These people can't believe that they get to work for Apple. They can't believe they get to work for Google. And I began to wonder, as their friend, what would it be like to work there? The person who waits with hope, the person who waits with witness, is the one who says, I can't believe that I get to be a Christian. I can't believe that Jesus stepped into my my life in spite of all of my negative baggage, in spite of my past, in spite of my sin. I can't believe it. I can't believe I get to be a part of this. 
And that's the type of infectious joy in relationship that makes people think, I wonder what it's like to be a Christian. It's a type of contagious gratitude that can't be contained. People who wait with witness are not those that say, you know, I really got to do something. You know, I really should talk to my neighbor about being a Christian. It's those that say, I can't believe I get to be a part of this. I can't believe that Jesus has rescued me. And then it begins to overflow in ways that we don't even expect, in conversations that we didn't plan, that we just happen to be there. And we get to bear witness. And we get to bear witness also through all the types of work that this church does that you do in your own individual lives. And that's what it means to wait with witness. It means, first of all, waiting with hope. Waiting with hope for yourself as well as those around you because of what Jesus has done. Let's now pray for our time in conclusion as we come to the table. Father, I pray that you would help us to be people who are eager to talk about you, are eager to bring your good news to bear upon our family life, upon our personal life, upon the lives at work and in our neighborhoods and in board meetings and in all the ways that we go about life, I pray that we would be convinced that you are present, that you are active, that you are caring about us intentionally. Lord, what a great privilege. We thank you that we are Christians by grace and not by our own effort. Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning. Some of us have met you and know you. Some of us are still asking questions, still trying to figure out if we can call ourselves Christians. I pray that there would be an infectious, contagious joy that not in our own strength, but in yours, that this church is able to maintain, that we would bear witness to the beautiful good news of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.